0: This is Understanding Israel Palestine. I'm Marco Patterson. My guest today is Youssef Munair, head of the Palestine Israel program at the Arab Center in Washington, D.C. We spoke July 27th about internal divisions within Israel and how the ground is shifting for Palestinians as well. First, news. Israel passed legislation that will double the sentence for Palestinian citizens committing sexual crimes from what it is for Jewish Israelis. Passed at the end of July with bipartisan approval, the new law targets Palestinian citizens of Israel if the authorities judge they are guilty of sexual harassment, assault, or rape of a Jewish woman because of a nationalist motive. Israeli and Palestinian women's groups deny that sexual offenses with so-called nationalistic motives is an issue, and say the unequal treatment of Palestinian and Jewish perpetrators is aimed not at combating gender crime, but at inciting hostility against Arabs. Orly Nir, chair of Betselem, Israel's largest human rights organization, said the law is
1: another tool in the establishment of Jewish supremacy. The progressive activist group, the Worker Circle, has resigned from the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, citing disagreements with the Umbrella Group over advocacy for Israel and anti-Semitism. In its resignation letter, the Worker Circle criticized the conference's promotion of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliances, working definition of anti-Semitism, a definition being adopted by communities and organizations across the country, but which some believe is intended to chill criticism of Israel. It also cited the conference's unwillingness to speak out against the erosion of democracy in this country and in Israel. Founded in 1900 by Yiddish immigrants, Since 2016, the workers' circle has focused on combating gerrymandering and other measures that contribute to the decline of democracy in the United States. If not now, a Jewish peace
0: group that opposes the Israeli occupation launched a campaign August 1st to pressure New York Democrats in Congress to refuse endorsements and financial contributions from APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. The pro-Israel advocacy group is considered one of the most powerful lobbying groups on Capitol Hill. In December 2021, AIPAC established its own political action committee and its own super PAC. Called the United Democracy Project, the super PAC concealed its creation by AIPAC, pouring $26 million into key primary races. The United Democracy Project took particular aim at female progressives running for Congress out of fear that even if they weren't critical of Israel now, they might become so. Most, but not all, of the candidates it supported won. My guest today is Youssef Munair, a writer and political analyst who focuses on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and U.S. policy towards Israel-Palestine. His articles have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, Foreign Policy Magazine, The Nation. He is a senior fellow and head of the Palestine-Israel program at the Arab Center in Washington, D.C. Youssef Muneer, thank you for joining us.
2: It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me.
0: Big news occurred this week when on July 24th, the Israeli parliament passed a law curbing the power of the Israeli Supreme Court one measure in a package of judicial reforms that the right-wing government in Israel hopes to enact. Massive protests against these judicial reforms have gone on for months now in Israel. Major Jewish organizations in this country that never criticized Israel spoke out against the passage of the bill, which is seen by many as degrading Israeli democracy. How big a moment is this? President Biden stated his opposition to the judicial reforms, which itself is unusual, but seems unwilling to take any concrete steps to express his disapproval. The day after the reform bill passed, the State Department and the Pentagon affirmed military ties between the two countries. Do you expect this bill or other measures that may pass the Israeli parliament, despite popular opposition, to lead to any real changes as regards U.S. policy, as regards people's willingness to criticize Israel?
2: Yeah, I do think that they're going to have major implications for that over time, it may not necessarily be immediate. But let's take a step back first and put this in the proper context. We are hearing a lot in this moment about a fight to save democracy in Israel of course, this is the way that the protesters against this legislative initiative on the part of the government would like to frame things, because they're trying to appeal to the Israeli government and also the outside world in an effort to try to press the government to stop with this legislative initiative. But in reality, the situation on the ground in Israel has long been something other than democracy. What is Actually taking place in Israel now is part of a much bigger social and cultural struggle between different ends of the Jewish Israeli population. And this is something that's been building up for some time as the country has moved more and more to the right and as Israeli settlers have begun to play bigger and bigger roles in shaping the direction of the state. This is mostly a divide within the Jewish Israeli community about what Israeli society should look like, how it should be ordered, and importantly which groups should have the most power within it. This is playing out in this legislative fight to try to put more power in the hands of the government and weaken the courts. The government of course is in the hands of the extreme right-wing. Right-wing coalitions have dominated the government ...for many years now, the parties and the constituencies within Israel who make up the the opposition have been gradually losing power over time. Uh, One of the last checks on the rise of the right wing's power has been the courts, and now these, these legislative efforts aim to neuter the courts so that the government, which again represents a majority... A slim majority, but a growing one over time of really right wing extremist perspectives will have more unchecked power moving forward and the ability to really order Israeli society as the religious extremists within the country see fit. I think looking at this from the outside, many Americans, Westerners more broadly, are confused and horrified as they see a country essentially engaged in a a massive debate and fight over how to define itself and this is disruptive for the u.s israel relationship because americans have always thought of israel as a a stable and vibrant democracy for the most part but this reality today challenges that of course underlying it all is a system of apartheid and occupation that israel carries out against palestinians So more and more people are looking at the situation on the ground over there and finding it harder to see how in any way this can be described as democratic or something that they would share values with.
0: Is it fair to say that the protest going on in Israel is a battle between secular and religious Jews?
2: Generalizations are always going to fall short. But that is one of the major divides within society that is overlapping with the different political perspectives here, the divide between the more religious ends of society and the more secular ones. There's also a sort of ethnic divide as well between the Ashkenazi Jews and the Eastern Jews within Israel there is a class divide that is overlapping this as well between the wealthier. Tel Aviv-based corporate elite within Israel and the more working class Israelis who the Netanyahu-led government has used populism to appeal to. So there are multiple different chasms which w- within Israeli society which overlap with this political fight for secular Ashkenazi Jews who were the founding elite class of Israeli society and have largely remained a empowered class over time they see the rise of the more religious end of the spectrum as a threat to their dominance and it's something that over time has become a real challenge these constituencies now have The control within government to reshape society in a way that would disadvantage this founding class, this founding community within Israeli society. So there are a number of different things that are overlapping here, and those are some of them.
0: We've seen some major Jewish organizations in this country that are usually unconditionally pro-Israel criticize the passage of the Judicial Reform Bill. I think the American Jewish Committee and the Anti-Defamation League came out with statements. Other Jewish organizations said nothing. Do you think the taboo against criticizing Israel that characterizes many Jewish organizations in this country has been broken?
2: I think it becomes a lot harder to say that you can't criticize the Israeli government when there are hundreds of thousands of Israelis in the streets protesting the Israeli government. I think that we have seen the impact of that uh, reach the American discussion on this, uh, just as as you noted from the position of some of these usually stalwart pro-Israel organizations expressing their concern and dismay over the direction that the government is heading in. And I think the pro-Israel organizations in the United States who have long been Supportive of uh, just about everything the Israeli government has done are really in a crisis mode right now, because so much of the line that is used to sell the US Israel relationship is this idea that it is based on shared values that the United States and Israel are like minded democracies, it's one thing to turn a blind eye to uh, the Israeli government's abuses of Palestinians, which is of course wrong. But it becomes much harder to turn a blind eye to the Israeli government's abuses against other Israelis. I think one of the things that's happening right now is that many of these organizations are finding it harder and harder to sell the idea that the United States and Israel are like-minded democracies.
0: I want to ask you about a recent article you wrote called Israel's Recent Attack on Janine, the Next Stage of Apartheid. The Israeli attack on the refugee camp in Janine in July was more violent than anything seen in the West Bank for the last 20 years and was comparable to what went on in 2002 during the Second Intifada. You write that battlefield dynamics have changed, that Palestinian armed resistance in the Northern West Bank has gotten more sophisticated as the power of the Palestinian Authority has waned. The PA has diminished legitimacy and you write, diminished capacity and will. I have several questions. First, Palestinians are so surveilled. Where and how do they get these weapons and how do they get trained on how to use them?
2: It's a good question. And you have to understand that situations that Palestinians are in and under military occupation, there's a lot we don't know about how this all happens. We do know that there is a lot of homemade devices being used, particularly now we're seeing the rise of improvised explosive devices being used to target Israeli military personnel carriers and tanks and so on. Oftentimes, these things can be made out of other items. We're not seeing highly sophisticated weaponry being used, which is obviously something that would, would need to be created by a a military industry and a state, which Palestinians don't have. But we are seeing a different level of violence, and we are seeing Palestinian capacities, particularly among militants in some of these refugee camps, evolving to include improvised explosive devices and rudimentary projectiles as well. The Israeli military's violence against these refugee camps has also escalated, and what I think is so important about all of this is the Israelis went into Janine in a a massive way in 2002 as part of their siege of Palestinian cities during the repression of the uprising in those years, and many of the Palestinians who are fighting the invading Israeli troops in uh, Janine's refugee camp this summer were not even alive in 2002 and I think it just goes to show you how lacking the Israeli vision for addressing this challenge really is the vision is just for repeated episodes of this for as long as possible Of course is not a recipe for peace it's not a way to resolve anything.
0: People increasingly view the Palestinian Authority as being a stooge for Israel, the body that Israel subtracted the occupation to. Do you think that's a fair judgment on Palestinians' part? Do Mahmoud Abbas and other Palestinian officials have the capacity to reform the PA? Can it be rehabilitated? Should it be rehabilitated? Is there still a viable role for it?
2: we need to remember why it is that so many palestinians think this way about the palestinian authority you have to remember the palestinian authority was an entity that was created to be a vehicle to carry palestinians to statehood as a product of the oslo accords from the early 1990s and if you look back at the oslo accords the initial plan was for there to be a palestinian state that the palestinian authority would help form By 1999. And if you look at the calendar now, it's 2023. So for Palestinians who are living under Israeli military occupation, they've seen decades literally go by. The very cause for being of the Palestinian Authority has not been achieved. What has happened instead is that Israeli occupation has only become further entrenched. Settlements continue to expand around Palestinians in the very space that was supposed to be reserved for a Palestinian state and the everyday machinations of Israeli occupation and apartheid continue to visit violence on the lives and livelihood and properties of Palestinians, all of this with an administration in the Palestinian Authority that is often cooperating with the Israelis to ensure the security of the occupying power. And so if you're a Palestinian living in this situation, how can you look at this authority as anything but a failed project? The reality around you in every possible direction is screaming that that is the case.
0: That leads me to the question, do you think the Palestinian authority should dismantle itself or will that simply lead to chaos?
2: I think a lot of Palestinians would probably tell you that life as it is, is pretty chaotic right now, even with the Palestinian authority around. And certainly that's a perspective, I think, that people in the refugee camp in Jenin and in other places where they're dealing with routine Israeli raids and the military showing up in the middle of the night would tell you. At the same time, there are some essential administrative services that the Palestinian Authority does provide. And a generation of Palestinians has grown up with the Palestinian Authority as part of their lives. So there's no doubt that any shift away from that would be disruptive to some degree. So in many ways, there is um, a sticking point here. But it is reaching a point where something has got to give. And for many years, even leaders of the Palestinian Authority have said that if there isn't a change, they're going to, quote unquote, hand over the keys to the Israelis and effectively dissolve or dismantle the authority. Obviously, that has not happened yet. But with every passing day, we seem to be getting closer to that point, whether the PA wants to do that voluntarily or not because their actual control over different parts of the territory which they're supposed to administer is clearly
0: waning. If you're just joining us, this is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm Margot Patterson, and I'm speaking with Yusuf Muneer, head of the Palestine-Israel program at the Arab Center in Washington, D.C. Things are looking very bleak for the Palestinians, as you pointed out. Violence in the West Bank has been increasing during the last year, and then since 2023, this new far-right government has come to power. That is greatly accelerating settlements. You have settlers terrorizing Palestinian villages. You have Palestinians feeling increasingly hopeless. From what I hear from people who have visited the region, the stage seems set for more violence. You mentioned that the battlefield dynamics are changed. Can armed resistance achieve anything for the Palestinians, given Israelis' military might and the huge resources and sophistication they bring to repression?
2: I think your characterization of the situation is in many ways fair. I think it's important to remember that at the same time, while Palestinians have been facing the brunt force of zionist settler colonialism in palestine for over a century now forcing them or and attempting to force them off their land and into smaller and smaller corners of it today between the jordan river and the mediterranean sea half the population if not more continues to be palestinian arab there is of course a important story here that is concerning that is negative, is clearly about the oppression that Palestinians are facing. But there's also a very important story here about steadfastness, sumud, as Palestinians call it. Despite all of the efforts to try to force them from their land and to wrest control of it away from them, Palestinians continue to remain. As to your question about armed resistance, I think that Palestinians have always had many different modes of resistance towards Zionist colonialism. The different methods that have been used have varied over time and have ebbed and flowed depending on the situation on the ground. There was a period of time where Palestinian leaders were engaged with negotiations with Israel. And it seemed as though there could be some progress in that direction to many Palestinians. But as it became clear that the strategies of negotiation were yielding less and less, ...over time, the incentive to continue to use arms to achieve liberation, I think, has gone up. And today, if you look at the perspectives of Palestinians, most will tell you that they believe that armed resistance is the way to go to achieve liberation, or at least change the status quo to a better place uh, than it is now. Of course, we know that the Israeli state has responded to that with overwhelming force and repression. This is why I have always been a proponent of trying to bring change from the outside and call on governments and civil society actors to press the Israeli government to uphold its obligations under international law and to end its violations of the human rights of Palestinians. Because I think anything short is a recipe for a very bloody outcome for both sides and, of course, overwhelmingly for Palestinians.
0: Talk to me more about bringing change from the outside. It seems that the international community's willingness to match deeds to words has, it's not, they don't have a very good record on that. Do you think that can change or do you think civil society is the only recourse or the only alternative that could affect change to the situation? I think that
2: these efforts have to be tried. They have to be tried to their fullest. I think you're, you're right that the international community, states around the world, and especially the United States, has really failed to hold Israel to account. In fact, they are the primary enablers of Israeli apartheid on the ground here in the United States through their annual uh, generous contributions uh, to the Israeli military and the amount of nearly four billion dollars a year i think that needs to change and i think that that kind of change from the outside could actually press the israelis into making some very difficult decisions about what they want their relationship with palestinians to be like i think that change is possible even if it may not be possible today or tomorrow and that it does require People of good conscience, people who care about human rights and international law, civil society actors around the world, pressing their respective governments to change their policies so that uh, they could bring their policies in line with international law and human rights vis-a-vis Israel and the Palestinians.
0: In your article, you say Israel is choosing apartheid and may decide to adapt its strategy of what it calls mowing the lawn in Gaza, that is periodically bombing it to the West Bank. And you mentioned that Israel may in the future assume a a semi-permanent state of armed conflict on the West Bank. How concerned are you that Israel might go further and expel Palestinians? And what consequences, if any, might it face if it did so?
2: I think this is something that is very, very concerning, in part because we have seen mass expulsions historically, both in 1948 and and again uh, to a different extent in 1967, and uh, smaller scale expulsions on a routine basis. We saw as recently as uh, mid July when uh, a Palestinian family was forced from their home in Jerusalem, and we see on a regular basis Palestinian property being taken, homes being demolished agricultural fields being uh, burned or bulldozed, all of these restrictions have the effect of trying to push Palestinians off their land. I think this is something that Palestinians face on a daily basis, but at the same time, there are growing calls today in high places in Israel, including within this far-right extremist government, calling for even greater actions against Palestinians there is talk about another Nakba the Palestinian word for the expulsion of of Palestinians from their towns and villages in 1948 and afterwards this discourse is growing within Israel and reaching more and more elevated and official circles it is a real cause for concern when you ask what if any cost there would be to this It's not really clear that there would be very much of a cost, which is what I think makes it so dangerous. We see again these actions taking place on a daily basis against Palestinians with very little pushback from the international community, if not outright support from the international community. I think it is something to be very concerned about and a very real possibility that should an Israeli government see an opportunity to push more Palestinians from their land and away from their homes. This is an opportunity that they could very well exploit as they have historically and use it to further entrench their grip on the land.
0: Last question for you, Yousef. I hear many commentators say, given all the circumstances, nonviolent resistance is the only option, the only way forward for Palestinians. But of course, that's easier said than done. You have to have a charismatic leader. You have to get everybody on board with that. Would the Israelis be receptive to a campaign of nonviolence? What's your opinion about that?
2: I think the answer is probably no, because we know that they're not receptive to the nonviolent Palestinian resistance that takes place all the time and has been taking place for decades. There are many Palestinian nonviolent resistors who have been brutally repressed and thrown in prison over the years. We know that even even at nonviolent protests of Palestinians, violent repressive means are used to shut them down. I don't think that that is likely going to appeal to Israelis, which is why I think that those kinds of methods might be more useful for external audiences who have the ability to shift their policy towards Israel. And maybe if that happens, then the Israeli government's willingness to listen or take a different perspective can shift. But I also think it's important for those people who are Supportive of Palestinian nonviolent resistance to get involved in it, to get involved with efforts to boycott, divest, and sanction, and also to oppose efforts to restrict freedom of expression when it comes to things like boycotts. Because you cannot tell Palestinians to practice nonviolent resistance and then at the same time be silent as their nonviolent resistance is repressed either by the Israeli military or by governments around the world who are seeking to uh, intimidate or criminalize uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions activism.
0: Youssef, thank you so much for coming on the program today. You're welcome. That was Yusuf Meneer, a senior fellow and head of the Palestine-Israel program at the Arab Center in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Understanding Israel-Palestine. If you'd like to listen to the full interview, you can go to our podcast or visit our program page on the KKFI website, kkfi.org, and listen online.